The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 8, Chapters 1 through 3. As Book 8 opens, we learn that Gringoire and the Court of Miracles have been in a terrible state of anxiety. Esmeralda has not been heard from in a month. Gringoire, trusting in her invincible modesty, dismisses the malicious rumor that she had been seen with an officer near the Pont Saint-Michel. One day, Gringoire notices a crowd outside the Palace of Justice, and he stops a young man coming out to ask what the matter is. This young man is Jean Frollo, there to again beg money of his brother the Archdeacon, who spends all his time in attending the spectacle that has attracted this crowd, the trial of, quote, a woman who murdered a man at arms, unquote. Gringoire follows the crowd, for, quote, there is nothing like the sight of a criminal trial to dispel melancholy, the judges being generally most delightfully stupid, unquote. He questions his neighbors about the identity of these judges, mocking each one in turn, and then settles back to watch the charade, saying, quote, Well, we will see these men of the gown devour human flesh. It is as good a sight as any other, unquote. Among them is the king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court and Claude Frollo's protege, Jacques Charmelou. We realize, but Gringoire doesn't, that the flesh to be devoured in this circus that he hopes will dispel his melancholy is that of the very woman whose disappearance has caused his grief, Esmeralda. His neighbors demand silence as an important piece of evidence is heard. La Falordel is presenting her testimony. Hers is a sensational narrative, all neatly organized around the thrilling, superstitious supposition that she had been visited by the legendary Spectre Monk. Through this filter, the handsome officer becomes the noble victim, the goat an agent of devilry and sorcery, a dark mass falling to the water, a phantom dressed like a priest, and a vanished coin the work of an evil spirit. Gringoire and his neighbors find this whole story terrible and probable, or, more likely, probable because it is entertainingly terrible. That a dagger was found on Esmeralda, that La Falordel was able to produce the birch leaf found in the coin's place, that the goblin monk had given this coin to the officer, all of this is enough to dispel any lingering doubts among the skeptics in the audience. When the king's advocate makes reference to the statement taken from the victim and calls him by name, Phoebus de Chateau-Pers, the accused rises, her hands clasped, her lips livid, her eyes horrible, and begs them to have mercy and tell her if he is alive. The king's advocate replies, Well, he is dying. Are you satisfied? And thus we learn that we are witnessing a murder trial in which there has been no murder. And Gringoire learns that the woman on trial is Esmeralda. Then the other prisoner is brought in, Little Jolly, accused of being possessed by the devil, resisting exorcism, and persisting in evil deeds, is threatened with the gibbet or the stake. 
when she performs in the courtroom all the tricks that had so delighted the same public in the square, including spelling out the name of the victim, Phoebus, she and her mistress are declared guilty of joining with powers of darkness to murder an officer of the king. When Esmeralda persists in denying the charge, she is sent to the rack, despite the fact that sending her to torture is such a burden on her prosecutors, who would be forced to endure the agony of waiting a bit longer to have their supper. Charmeleau escorts Esmeralda into a room which, with its thick walls, its red glow, and the flaming chasm in its black-toothed furnace, seems to be the very mouth of hell. The presence of Pierrot Torteru, his square-faced gnomish assistants, and the array of horrible instruments makes the environment more ghastly and terrifying still. Stupefied, bewildered, with terror freezing the marrow of her bones, Esmeralda still manages, when asked whether she persists in denying the accusations, to feebly nod her head. And the torturers, preparing to do their evil work, bear the dainty leg and charming foot that had so often amazed her bystanders with their beauty. But one turn of the screwjack on the buskin, and Esmeralda is broken and forced to confess. Death is preferable. And Charmeleau congratulates himself on his gentleness. Esmeralda returns to the courtroom for this circus's final act. She confesses to murder and only pleads that she be killed quickly. Charmeleau revels in the moment by delivering a remarkable piece of oratory, complete with comedic Latin quotations that culminates in the recommendation that both Esmeralda and her goat be executed in the public square. A moment of real and desperately needed comedy comes when little Jolly stands up on her haunches and performs her best trick, a pantomime of Charmeleau and all his self-important gesticulations. But only a moment, for poor, innocent Esmeralda is sentenced to a cruel death and borne away. The next of my posts was called Facets of Injustice. These chapters were painful. If you listened to the audio, you might have heard my irrepressible groan at the conclusion of the trial. I could have taken it out, but I figured I was only giving voice to what you were surely also feeling. But like all painful but great scenes in literature— I also found them illuminating. Hugo incisively exposes so many timeless and universal facets of injustice. They are worth exploring here. Things like the public's predilection for and predisposition to belief in sensational and scandalous accusations. When Gringoire asks a young man outside the Palace of Justice why a crowd has gathered, he replies, quote, I don't know, sir. I hear that they are trying a woman who has murdered a man at arms. Unquote. If the trial is a salacious one, details such as whether the woman on trial murdered or allegedly murdered a man, and for that matter, whether the murdered man is even dead, seem to fade away in their importance. 
Then there is the human tendency to judge the merits of an argument by the attractiveness and geniality, or lack thereof, of the arguer. It is as problematic for Gringoire's neighbor to place trust in Master Jacques Charmolou as a consequence of his very amiable air, as it is for Gringoire to mistrust his pinched nostrils and thin lips. Something else that struck me as familiar was the way in which one can be passionately certain of the thrust of his story, yet remarkably unclear about the details. And then, what is recalled about those nebulous details always seems to tend toward the exaggerated and grandiose. So, when La Falordel testifies about the arrival of Esmeralda, she says, quote, She had with her a goat, a big goat. I've forgotten now whether it was black or white, unquote. But that it looked like a devil and savored of sorcery, of that much she is sure. Or what about the inclination to dismiss a more plausible explanation for something in favor of a less plausible one, because you are wedded to your conclusion? I feel like there's a term for this, and if there is, let me know. It's the inclination that leads one to say, quote, All at once I heard a scream upstairs, and something fell on the floor, and the window opened. I ran to my window, which is just under it, and I saw a dark mass fall past me into the water. It was a phantom, dressed as a priest, unquote. Rather than the explanation that better satisfies Occam's razor, that it was perhaps a priest. Hugo also repeatedly and chillingly captures a frightening capacity of the simple-minded to be numb to real suffering in others, and to elevate petty personal concerns over deeply moral ones. From La Falordel's reaction to the discovery that Phoebus had been stabbed, quote, "'Well done,' said I. "'It will take me more than a fortnight to scrub up these boards. I shall have to scrape them.' it will be a dreadful piece of work, unquote. To her conviction that what was worst of all was that, quote, when I went to get the crown to buy my tripe, I found a withered leaf in its place, unquote. A revelation that prompted a murmur of horror in the courtroom. To the judge's complaint, which prompted a groan of horror in me, that it is so disagreeable to them to have to send Esmeralda to the rack when they have not supped. Pick up a newspaper, and I promise you will find some variation on every one of these facets of injustice in the stories of the day. And I have to add that I was on Twitter the day I wrote this, and I found two examples myself, which I'll post in the Facebook group. The last of my posts was called Jolly. Okay, let's end on a more delightfully positive note, because how could anyone not love Jolly? Though La Falordel may say her beard and horns give her the suggestion of the devil, for us readers she is the essence of innocence and devotion. In our last reading, I was moved by the description of sweet little Jolly sitting blithe and loyal at Esmeralda's feet, as Esmeralda was being manipulated by a philanderer and spied on by a lecher. Quote, the young girl was blushing and trembling and confused. Her long, drooping lashes shaded her flushed cheeks. 
The officer, to whose face she dared not raise her eyes, was radiant. Mechanically, and with a charming awkwardness, she drew meaningless lines on the bench with her fingertip, and then looked at her finger. Her feet were hidden, for the little goat was lying upon them." Unquote. I found a painting by Cowper of Tennyson's lovelorn Mariana staring off in the distance while her dog lies faithfully at her feet. It is the same sort of moment. I love the description of Jolly's joyous reunion with her mistress in the courtroom, though Esmeralda has sunk so deep in despondence that she doesn't even notice her. Quote, the dainty creature paused a moment on the threshold, stretching her neck as if, perched on the point of a rock, she had a vast horizon before her. All at once she saw the gypsy girl, and leaping over the table and the head of a clerk with two bounds, she was at her knees. Then she curled herself gracefully at the feet of her mistress, imploring a word or a caress." Unquote and we are indebted to Jolly for the much-needed comic relief and social satire of her mocking imitation of the courtroom proceedings. Quote, As he spoke, he pointed to the little goat, which, seeing Charmeloud gesticulate, sincerely thought that it was but right for her to do the same, and sitting up on her haunches, was imitating, to the best of her ability, with her forefeet and her bearded head, the pathetic pantomime of the king's proxy. This was, it may be remembered, one of her best tricks. Unquote. In part because she inhabits such a dark world, Jolly is a punctuated picture of the value we gain from a beloved pet. Blissfully immune to the strife in human relations, they are there as a constant source of unconditional and furry affection. I went on a quest for sweet pictures of goats, and I found many that I'll share in the Facebook group. Somehow, they always look like they are smiling. I never noticed that until I met Jolly. <laughs>